Here's how I'd like for us to start this morning. Could we, just as a community of faith, just affirm together that we love God's Word? I mean, do we, are, are we a people that love and appreciate the Word of God together? If you've got your copy of God's Word, just grab it, just hold it up. Just hold it up. Can we just give, I mean, can we just say thank you, Jesus? Thank you for the gift of your word this morning. That we as a community of faith believe that God's heart for his people is revealed through his word. And we joyfully submit to what God has contained for us here. That's hard sometimes, isn't it? Because some of the things that we read in God's word are difficult truths. And to joyfully submit to the word of God does not always mean that we are happy about it. We can be joyful about it and at the same time recognize that there are challenging things in here for us. God's word should challenge us. It will this morning. And I'll just go ahead and warn you, um, if you've been tracking with us through this series on the Upside Down Kingdom, you know the section we come to today is a hard one. What we cover today will be difficult for, and painful for some of us because we're talking about marriage and divorce. And when half of all first-time marriages in the United States of America end in divorce, it is almost a certainty that every single one of us in this room today have been affected one way or another by a marriage that has ended. And so I say all this to you to say that it, we're all impacted and affected by marriage and divorce. I said first marriages because second and third marriages end at a higher rate than first marriages do. If you are single today, then could I just encourage you to lean in? If you're unmarried, could I encourage you to lean into what God has to teach us about marriage and divorce? If you're married could I encourage you to lean in? If you are divorced, could I encourage you to lean in to God's word this morning? If you are widowed, could I encourage you to lean in to God's word this morning? God's word is good for us. And what he teaches here, and it's important to recognize again, that this is the Sermon on the Mount. This is really the first public address. And Jesus teaches on these very specific things in this most important of sermons. If God's word is just an operating manual for your life, um, it makes sense then to skip sections when they don't seem to be applicable to the season of life that we're in. I, I, I don't know if you know this, but when you buy a vehicle, there is a manual in the glove box. Some of us have never looked at that. Uh, until like a light comes on the dash. We're like, well, what does that mean? Let me look through the manual. And an operating manual makes sense to skip forward to the section that you, that you need. Well, what should my tire pressure be? Well, let me look in the operating manual. God's word is more than an operating manual for us, isn't it? And so we don't skip sections. He has written it and given it to us because he loves us. 
and because he desires that our lives would lead to knowing him better and loving him better. And so let me, if you've walked through the painful reality of divorce at some point in your life, then my job today is to remind you that God loves you. And even if your marriage has ended, your relationship to your heavenly father has not. And God has not abandoned you. He has not turned his back on you. He has not given up on you. And as we talk today, even about the sins that sometimes lead to divorce, whether you have in this room committed those or you have had those committed against you, um, trust that there is forgiveness in Jesus this morning, that God is bigger than our sins, that he is bigger than the sins of our exes as well. Matthew chapter 5, let's pick up in verse 27 because it leads into this appropriately. You have heard it said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away for it is better that you lose one of your members, then your whole body go into hell. It was also said, so Jesus follows up this teaching um, on anger, on lust, and he moves straight into divorce. It was, and at first glance, this, I'll just be honest with you, this seems like an odd segue. But what Jesus said, it, it naturally follows the way Jesus reasons it out for us. And I'll show you that in a moment if you haven't already picked up on it. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Some context would be helpful. Adulterally is technically speaking uh, sexual immorality that violates the marriage covenant between a man and a woman. There is a brilliant reason that Jesus follows up his teaching on adultery and lust with teaching on marriage and divorce. And here it is. Lust, in Jesus' line of thinking, which is correct because he's, he is the son of God, lust can lead to adultery. Adultery can lead to divorce, but divorce can lead to adultery. This is what Jesus outlines for us. And he just said it very, very clearly. Unless you are divorced on these grounds of sexual immorality, then you marry someone who has divorced you, committed adultery. So lust can lead to adultery, which can lead to divorce, but divorce can lead to adultery as well. And so Jesus is outlining this all for us. And remember, he is, he, he's already said this so many times, I'm not so much interested in the externals as I am your heart. In the first century, adultery was not taught or looked at in the same way as it is today. And even today, in, in, in much of culture, it is seen very flippantly. Um, but divorce was not thought of in the same way as it is, at least within the church culture that you belong to um, as well. It's helpful to remind ourselves that the world that Jesus was teaching was vastly different than the world that we live in today. Have you ever thought about the things that Jesus in his 33 years upon the earth did not experience that, that you are all too familiar with? 
What are the just, I mean, broadly, what are the things that are different for you in your house that's a part of your everyday week than it would have been for Jesus and the crowd that he was teaching? Technology. God bless the first century believers that didn't have cell phones. What else? Didn't have, yeah. Didn't have books in this regard. Didn't have TV. Didn't have entertainment the same way, did they? You know what? Jesus never had. Jesus never had a taco. Can you believe that? Isn't that terrible? Jesus never got up in the morning, as many of us do, and walked to the kitchen and hit that magical little button and had a cup of coffee. Is so dip, first century is so different than where we are today. And many times I read the Bible and I just think that it's, it's was well, written today. Now it's a, applicable today, obviously. But we have to understand the context that Jesus is writing in uh, or, or, or speaking in and the New Testament authors are writing in for us to understand why he said it in the way he said it. Okay, In the first century, adultery and divorce were not looked at in the same way. The disciples' world was, was different. It was so different. We're going to see that uh, 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 later on a little more. As it relates to marriage, adultery, and divorce, what would have been common is that a man would go into a synagogue in Jesus' day, and a common teaching in that synagogue uh, where the Torah was taught, a common teaching would have been by a scribe or Pharisee, um, they might share that adultery is committed if a woman cheats on her husband. Okay? Adultery was commonly taught that it could only take place if there was a married man involved. Uh, so he might share that adultery could only be committed against a husband. Adultery could not, the common teaching, adultery could not be committed against a wife. Now, for the ladies in the room, does that seem like a bit of a double standard? The answer is yes. You want to know why? Because it is. It's a gross double standard. If a man, essentially, it, it, a woman cheated on her husband, she was committing adultery against him. But if a man cheated on his wife with another woman who was unmarried, then that was taught that it was not adultery. But if she was married to someone else, so if a man cheats on, is unfaithful to his wife with a woman who was married already, then that was adultery because adultery was committed against a husband. Do you see that the, there's some inequity here? There's a double standard. Um, human beings, and I am one of them, have a tendency to create and exploit loopholes. I mean, that is, that is our story all day long. Those of you who, are, who live in the business world and deal with contracts, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Richard Carver's back there nodding like, I, you know this all too well. We are masters at looking for, creating, and exploiting loopholes. That's why there's so much fine print on everything in your life. That's why when there's a pharmaceutical commercial, the end of it is longer than the meat of it. 
Because everybody's looking for the loophole. So a husband, it was taught, could be unfaithful to his wife and convince others and maybe even himself to a degree that he has not committed adultery. But in the kingdom of God, this is why it's revolutionary what Jesus is doing and teaching. In the kingdom of God, God is more concerned with our what? With our hearts. So it does not matter what we can convince others of. Watch. Because God knows and we feel. You know, you understand what I mean by that? When you do something that you know is wrong, but you may be able to convince other people that it was not wrong, God still knows that it was wrong and in your heart you still feel it. You still feel it. That's true in Jesus' day, that you may be able to convince everybody around you that you are wholly sanctified and you are higher than everybody else, that you have not committed adultery because the, the woman that you have been with is unmarried and that was permissible. But in your heart... God has planted truth, and there's still a feeling that what you have done is wrong. It's the way God designed us. God knows, and we feel, even if we can't always put our finger on it. So, even when we posture ourselves as innocent before others, God knows, and we feel. Duplicity fractures us, and internally, we can't feel good about ourselves when we're duplicitous, when we're less than authentic. You with me? We all know this. We've all been that person. We've all acted one way in one place and acted another way or said one thing. We've all probably been guilty of that, and it is very difficult to feel good on the inside when we are that way. So as it relates to marriage... And divorce, first point that I want us to just sort of gather around is this. We have to recognize that God makes the rules. We have to recognize that God makes the rules. We have to recognize that marriage is not a man-made institution. That marriage is created by who? Marriage is created by God. And because God created and designed marriage, and because he is in charge, he and he alone Makes the rules. Let me illustrate that this way. Um, today, this afternoon, and this evening, there will be two NFL playoff games, right? Anybody got a dog in that fight? Anybody? Okay. A couple of us. All right. And then several of us are just going to watch because we're grieving the day that football takes a vacation for a while. Many of us will try out to watch this new league that's going to come on TV in a little bit to fill that void in our lives, but we're going to watch the playoffs just because we like the game, right? That's, that's many of us. Do you know the rules for overtime? Do you understand the rules for overtime? They change every once in a while. Um, NFL overtime rules. Let me, let, me, let me share these with you. No more than one 10-minute period will follow a three-minute intermission. Each team must possess or have the opportunity to possess the ball. The exception. Watch this. Now, you... Some of you know the rule that I'm about to share with you, and you're like, it's terrible. Here it is. The exception, if the team that gets the ball first scores a touchdown on the opening possession, what happens to the game? Does that seem fair to you? It doesn't to me. 
right? Like if my team doesn't get the ball first and we and our defense doesn't make the right stand, then they score a touchdown. We don't even have the chance to tie it up. It's over. If a team scores a touchdown, then the opposing team does not even get the opportunity. But you know what? Who doesn't get to decide the rules? Any of us or the teams. Who does get to decide the rules? Do you know this? The NFL commissioner appoints coaches and executives to the competition committee, and they decide the rules. And guess what? Ultimately, because the NFL commissioner appoints people to a team to make the rules, ultimately, who has ultimate authority? The man in charge. I, I know that's a very simple way to illustrate this, but who gets to make the rules? The man in charge. As we talk about marriage, as we talk about divorce, who gets to make the rules? The one in charge. Marriage is created by God, and he alone is in charge. We're not in charge, so he makes the rules. Flip over to Matthew chapter 3. 19 with me, if you will. Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is going to talk in a little more detail about marriage and divorce. I'm going to give you some thoughts as I read through this. If you're taking notes, I'll try to make these, these clear for us this morning. Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 3. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Now, the first word that I'd have you write down if you're taking notes is clarity. Jesus provides clarity here about the intention of marriage. God designed marriage... God designed marriage is always and only meant to be, and I'm not saying this to get amens, and I know where I can get them in a message on marriage. This is just a statement about what the Bible says here. God designed marriage is always and only ever meant to be between a man and a woman. So Jesus starts with clarity. He says, let me, let me show you what it is, okay? And he continues in verse five, and he said, Therefore, and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Second word there is cleaving. We got clarity. Now he's, he's going into it. He's showing us this cleaving. What are they cleaving? They're cleaving to create a new family unit. This is, the, this, is, this, is, this is what marriage is given for here. And the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Third word, completeness. A one flesh union is more than just a sexual union. Uh, the completeness that Jesus talks about here goes, goes beyond that. You are joined together in marriage at a soul level. And you understand that. If you've been through a divorce, you certainly understand that. If you've lost a spouse or a child... God bless you and be gracious to you. But you understand that more than those of us who have not experienced that pain. 
But this is why the death of a spouse or a child is so painful. In the case of marriage, God has completely joined two people, two separate people together into one. That's more than just sexual. That is a, 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 one pastor puts it this way, a mingling of souls. That is two being joined together at a level deeper than just Physically, you, in a sense, are joined in a very miraculous and peculiar way. In the case of a child, a very literal piece of you is in that child. Part of you is in them. That's why this pain is so, so peculiar. In divorce and death of our spouses, and sometimes, God forbid, even in the death of a child, so we recognize that God makes these rules. What therefore, Jesus continues, God has joined together. Next word for us is covenant. What God has joined together, this is a covenant. A covenant is something that God has done. This goes back to what we've stated, that God creates marriage. We recognize that marriage is something he has done. And Jesus continues, what God has done, this covenant that God has created, let not man separate. So number one, recognize that God makes the rules. And he gives us clarity, shows us cleaving. There's a completeness. He shows us this covenant. But then the second main point is this. We realize that marriage is primarily not about us. I want us to pause here and I want to point us to one more text that teaches us about the heart of God for marriage. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5, 31 and 32. You can flip over there if you want or you can just listen and let me read it to you. Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast, that's that cleaving, and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Verse 32, Paul says, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to what? Christ and his, say it, church. The final thing that we will say specifically about God's heart for marriage is this, that marriage is ultimately about Jesus and his church. It's primarily about Jesus. That's the final C word there. It's church. It's about Jesus and his church. As a follower of Jesus, you need to realize that your marriage is a testimony of the love of Jesus for his people. That should be both convicting and comforting all at the same time. Be comforted if you're in the room and you're married. Because do you know who is invested in your marriage? Your heavenly father. Your heavenly father is invested in your marriage. Why? Because he designed it to be a reflection of the love his son has for us as a body of believers. So he is invested in your marriage. But it should also be convicting. Because he's invested in my marriage and he expects that my marriage should be a picture of his love for us. 
As dysfunctional as our marriages can be, it is a picture of Jesus and his love for the church. So be comforted because your heavenly father is rooting for you. He's resourcing you. He is watching and cheering you on because your marriage ultimately is about him. Friends, have you ever thought about the simple fact that marriage provides the bookends for scripture? That the human story begins with God walking down the aisle to the walking Eve down the aisle to the one he created to be her soulmate. And the human story that has thus been revealed to us ends practically with us at a wedding as well. Your heavenly father is invested in your marriage, and he designed all of human history to reflect this wondrous union. Therefore, it only makes sense that you and I would invest in and fight for healthy marriages. And that starts in our own homes first. But it goes beyond that. We should lean into and fight for marriages for other people as well. So that answers the question, what is God's heart for marriage? Now, let's tackle the difficult part. What is God's heart for divorce? God has a heart for marriage. What's his heart on the matter of divorce? Jesus moves on from talking about the real meaning of adultery to talking about the real meaning of divorce. And again, he shows them to be connected. Adultery, again, can lead to divorce, but divorce can lead to adultery in Jesus' mind. Matthew chapter 19, 7 through 9. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, watch, he said to them, because of the hardness of heart, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. Isn't it interesting how Jesus lumps these people who are asking the question in with these people who lived hundreds of years before who are looking for certificates of divorce from their wives? He says, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. What does that tell us about God's heart? As it relates to divorce, he's not a fan. He doesn't love it. We know that much so far, or it would have been a part of the story from the beginning. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The Pharisees come to Jesus and ask if marriage is supposed to be such a big deal. Why did Moses allow certificates to be written, certificates of divorce to be written? And here's where Jesus presses in. Marriage certificates were permitted by Moses because of the hardness of your own hearts. Because he looks at the crowd and says, you guys are a bunch of dirty, rotten sinners. Why these certificates of divorce? Because of your sin. That's what Jesus starts with. Because you are a wretch and your sinfulness is what leads us here. We need to understand a few things. Number one, God never approved or appreciated divorce in the Old Testament. Never approved of it as an idea and saying this is, a, a, this is good for human flourishing. That's what I mean by that. Not that there weren't instances where it was approved, but he didn't approve of it and appreciate it. He didn't say this is a good for us and for you. Number two, he did allow it in certain cases and gave instructions to regulate it specifically because he cares about us. This is how it's so strange and wonderful all at the same time, this teaching. The context is important here. If a man in the Old Testament left his wife, she had zero way of supporting herself. 
If he has left her, but a certificate of divorce has not been written, then she is not free to remarry, and she has, she's destitute. She can't take care of her needs. What's God interested in? He's interested in taking care of people and loving them and shepherding them. So, so divorce took place, and God gave instructions specifically because he cared about women and their protection. Isn't that a wonderful thing in the midst of a hard teaching? The heart of God to cover our needs and show his gracious hand to us. Number three, we, are, we often are too casual, too casual regarding the covenant of marriage. Culturally, marriage is treated as, as disposable. Try it out. If it, does it, if it doesn't fit right, then we can get rid of it. Number four, we must revere and fight for marriage. Uh, ours, but others as well. As a church, we need to be invested in healthy marriages for those in the church, but in our community as well. This is, this is necessary and good for human flourishing in a culture that marriages are strong. We never lose by revering God's holiness, and we revere the holiness of God when we fight for marriage. Number five, there are specific circumstances and instances in Scripture where divorce is permitted. There are two that I want to show you right now. A, or number one, divorce is permitted in the case of adultery or the Greek word pornea. Pornea, of course, it's where we get the word pornography. And number two, divorce is permitted in the case of desertion or abandonment. We'll look at both of these briefly. The word pornea is the same word that we've seen before for sexual immorality. Jesus is not saying, and, and watch me, Jesus is not saying that divorce is permissible for any type of sexual sin. He's already established that lust is sexual sin. But if he's saying that divorce is permissible for every sexual sin, including lust, then every single person in this room or any room could divorce and rip their marriage certificate into shreds, and they could use the Bible verse mistranslated to do so. But that's not what he's saying here. Every one of us in this room, every one of you who are streaming online or listening to a podcast later in the week, We've been guilty of lust at some point in our lives. Should our marriages be thrown out because of that? Absolutely not. Why? Because God has a heart for marriage. God has a heart for divorce as well. It's just a different heart. God hates divorce. His heart is for marriage, and his heart is against divorce. Situations in marriage where sexual sin takes place require wisdom and prayer. And I would just say to the room or to those listening online or those who will listen to this later, if you attend other churches, these are situations where you need godly counsel and people to gather around you and speak wisdom over your life. And you need support. And you need people who are praying with you and for you and that will not be flippant with trying to give you a Bible verse band-aid to put over your marriage or the hurt in your life. That is what your pastors are for. That is what your small group leader is for. You gather seasoned believers and you ask for wisdom and you ask for them to blanket you in godly wisdom and prayer. Heaven forbid you find yourself in that situation in your family, but if you do, you need wisdom from above. And we're here to walk with you and pray with you through those valleys, heaven forbid.
But it is permitted for a spouse who has been sinned against sexually in this way. God allows divorce is different than God commands divorce. There is forgiveness for anyone who confesses and repents. And if you sincerely seek Jesus, he forgives you. But divorce is permitted in the case of gross sexual sin against a spouse. Number two, divorce is permitted in the case of desertion or abandonment. Paul talks in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10. You can go there if you want, verses 10 through 16. If not, I'll just read it to you. Listen, Paul speaking here, and I'm going to get into the details of what he's saying. To the married I give this charge. And he says, not I, but the Lord. Hmm. Not I, but the Lord. Now, why does he say that? We'll get to that. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. That's not salvation. That's saying there's an opportunity to reach them for Jesus. But the opportunity is almost lost. And if you can endure by the grace of God, be a light in your marriage, is what Paul is saying here. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they're holy. But if the unbelieving partner, here's the rule. If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? This section has caused so much confusion in the church over the years. Verse 12 Right, What Paul is saying here, what Paul means when he says to the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, am speaking here. Is Paul saying, does that mean that this section or these verses that follow are not inspired? And if so, where does that end? How many paragraphs do we have to go before we get into the good stuff again? Are these all just Paul's ramblings at this point? No. What Paul is suggesting here is that he is teaching something that hasn't been taught before. Right, not I, right, but the Lord. What he's saying is, Jesus taught on this. He said, I'm just repeating what Jesus has already said. And then when he gets to verse 12 and he says, I, not the Lord, what he's saying, this is a new teaching. Just as inspired as everything else in Scripture. It is in there for our good, and it is applicable for our lives. Here's why. Here's why Paul would say, here, I'm giving you a new teaching that has not been taught before. Again, we think about context. When Jesus was teaching, where did he teach? Synagogues? Where were those synagogues? Help me. Jewish communities? Where were the Jewish communities? Let's get broad. Israel. Paul is writing a letter called 1 Corinthians. What do you know about Corinth? They're nasty. The, uh, they did not have the same experience as the people that Jesus is teaching. See, when Jesus was teaching in the synagogues and in Israel, who's he teaching? He's teaching Jewish people. 
And Paul comes along and he says, hey, if a believer is married to an unbeliever, well, guess what there weren't when Jesus was teaching? They were just Jewish people. They weren't even Christians yet. Now Paul's coming along and he says, all right, now I've got something to add to the teaching. Was he saying, if you have a believer married to an unbeliever, this could not have occurred before, but now it can. And it does all the time in our culture, does it not? Still does, in the church even today. And so what, G, what Paul is saying, divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit, is authoritative over our lives. He is teaching that if a believer finds themselves married to an unbeliever and the unbeliever abandons the believer, the believer is biblically permitted to seek a divorce. Not commanded to, okay? Biblically permitted to. If a believer abandons his spouse, then... This is an issue that requires wisdom, again, and thoughtful counsel and prayer. Many pastors, myself included, believe that in some cases, significant abuse is even abandonment. Now, let me just say this to you. There, there, are, there are cases because we live in a broken and fallen world where abuse happens, and you know it as well as I do. And not a person in this room or a person in any room deserves abuse no matter what you have done or haven't done. And there are cases where manipulation takes place and we can be made to believe that things are our fault. But listen to me, every single one of us is responsible for our own actions. No one ever has merited abuse from another person in the eyes of our Creator. If you find yourself counseling somebody or ever, heaven forbid, in a situation like that, my answer to you, my call to you would be get yourself safe. Get yourself safe. Get your children safe. And let's walk with you through these very, very difficult and challenging circumstances. It's important to know that your partner's behavior is not your fault. We're all responsible for our own Actions, Jesus said, from within, from, for from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. And all of these evil things come from within and they defile a person. What's he saying? You can't make someone else sin. We are responsible for our sin. And we are responsible for how we react to someone else's sin. Do not let someone else's sin cause you to sin. Our sin comes from within. Someone else sins, that comes from within them. When Jesus is teaching this, he is teaching this to a, to a room full of people who know the Old Testament law, and there's no such thing as an unbeliever marrying a believer. When Paul is teaching this to believers in Corinth, which would more uh, be representative of the society that we live in, he is teaching a different context. And he says, look, this is how God looks at this issue. God's heart for divorce is that he hates it because he knows it hurts his kids so bad. He knows that it wounds us. Why? Because he created it in the first place so that two souls would mingle together, that two souls would be intertwined. God hates it because it does, it does a violence to our being. God hates it because it is a, it, 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 it is a poor testimony, a 
of his relationship to the church. God is not for divorce, but God also recognized that we live in a fallen and broken world. And therefore, anyone in this room or in any room who have been through divorce, know that you are loved and cared for by your creator, that he doesn't look at you. And in the church, it has happened before. But God doesn't look at you as a second-class citizen or a second-class Christian. He doesn't look at you and say, oh, you have an asterisk next to your name. And if you've ever been made to feel that way, I am so sorry you've been made to feel that way. That every single one of us has baggage. But the word of God is given for our good. Why? Because he loves us. And when we follow God's word and we live by the rules, the principles that he gives us here, it is for our good and it is for our flourishing. Here's how I want us to end today. I told you this would be a little different, more teachy than preachy. And so our ending is going to be different than it normally might be as well. Why? Because we have a room full of married people. We have a room with divorced people. We have a room with widowed people. We have a room with single people. We have a room with teenagers who are hopefully none of those things yet. Then you teenagers have secret marriages and we need to have a conversation afterwards. So what do we, here's what I'd like for us to do. We're just going to end our time praying for marriages. Because whether we're single or whether we're married, we want to invest in healthy marriages. Why? Because it's a representation of God's love for his people. Why? Because it's what God has gifted us for human flourishing. It's hard for some of us who have pain from this. But I'm just going to encourage us right now. Let's all of us. Can we just bow our heads? we just close our eyes? Let's just take a minute in silence. And I want you to think about people in your life and specifically, some of you got adult kids that are newly married. Let's just take this time. Let's just pray for their marriages. Some of us, we know people right now that their marriage is struggling. Let's take their marriages to the Lord. Let's also just pray for the marriages of people in this church. And let me close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you for your word. Even in sections that are challenging and hard for us to hear and sometimes hard for us to sit under the teaching of. That's why we say at the beginning, we joyfully submit to your word. We joyfully submit to your word because we know your heart and your heart is good for your people. Lord, we just pray for healthy marriages. We know there's not a marriage that has ever lasted that didn't have hard seasons. That's why we need your grace, your love, and your wisdom to be spouses that honor you first and honor our spouses. Lord, use the marriages of people in this room to tell a story of your goodness to this community. Lord, pray for the marriages of our children. Pray for the future marriages of our children as well, Lord, that you would send them partners that you have designed for them. 
You've designed them for a beautiful marriage where their souls will be mingled together. We pray for the health of their marriages and that you would use those stories to tell of your goodness to future generations. Lord, we pray for people whose marriages are hurting right now. Holy Spirit, would you just make yourself so known and present in their homes? And we ask for healing. Lord, we pray right now even for those who have been through the pain of divorce. And Lord, we recognize, God, that you give us fresh starts and you don't look at us through any particular lens other than the lens of the love and the blood of Jesus. And so we just ask for continued healing for those who have been through that pain, for those who have lost a spouse as well, Lord. God, continue to minister, continue to comfort, and continue to bring healing in the beautiful, the strong, and the wise name of our Savior Jesus, we pray. Let me end with a plug for this. If you have been through the pain of divorce, and we have a great ministry called Divorce Care that walks with people through the healing of that. God gives us second chances, gang. Aren't you glad for that? Aren't you glad that the Father hasn't written anybody in this room off? Amen.